Turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, at Mark 15. And um, I do want to make note, was everybody receiving this when you came in? Okay, awesome. Beautiful job by, um, is it Jen? Jen gave us the picture. Is she here? Jen, you did this. This is awesome. I'm hearing good stuff about your photography. So thank you for that. It was beautiful. And thank you, Melody and Jay, for making this happen. So beautiful. This, this is something, if you're new to the road, that we do every semester. You get this, and, and it's a key part of how we do our discipleship groups. I won't explain that right now, but just read it. P, B, and J, a little so you all have an understanding of prayer, Bible, and journal, and how we emphasize at the road a personal growing relationship with Christ. We're in Mark 15. We're coming to the end. Next week will be our last message in Mark, 55 messages we've done in Mark. And then in the summer, we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare, the invisible war. We'll be talking about Satan, demons, and the fourth dimension. We've had a number of encounters with the demonic um, here uh, at the road in this first year of starting this church. We've got plenty more that are going to come our way. Some of you have strongholds in your life that you've never been set free from because of childhood issues and struggles, and it's actually a demon. You said, oh, can Christians be demonized? Absolutely. All the letters that talk about demonic, fourth dimension, spiritual warfare in the New Testament are written to believers. And so there is a misnomer out there, probably from Satan, this idea that Christians can't be demonized. And uh, do I believe Christians uh, can't be demon-possessed? I do. I believe you can't be demon-possessed. But I do believe you can be demonized. And demonized in the Greek means to be demon-influenced. To such a degree that there can be strongholds in your life that you've never been set free from. And we're going to go after that all summer. So starting in two weeks, we're going to start probably in Genesis chapter 1. And we will cover over the next three months probably most books of the Bible. Because spiritual warfare, this issue of the invisible war, is in every chapter of the Bible in some way, shape, or form. We're not going to cover every chapter of the Bible, I can guarantee you that. But we're going to talk about, first of all, the high-level, strategic level of the warfare. And then we're going to bring it down to what I would call ground-level. Ground-level warfare, which is where we live and how we handle that. So this week, we're talking about the cross, the killing of Jesus. Next week, we get into the resurrection of Christ. And then we'll be moving into a series called War on spiritual warfare. Jesus has been condemned by the Jews. Jesus has now been condemned by the Romans through Pontius Pilate. He has now stood before Caiaphas and Annas. They were actually two high priests, by the way. They were related to each other, a son-in-law. And he has stood before both of them. He's been now paraded before Herod. He has been beaten by the professional palace soldiers. Mocked in kind of a vaudeville act of, of, of poking fun and torturing him as a king of the Jews. Then last week we looked at the scourging of Jesus. Probably the most painful, torturous, hideous form of torture ever known to man was a scourging by the Romans. And we talked about last week, in a scourging, most men died. Uh, most men, most criminals died just in the scourging, probably because of the nature of what Jesus was being 
um, convicted of, they held back at the end so that he would not die. And if you recall, they gave him back his clothes. And so I believe that that was a backhanded way to keep him alive from exposure so that he could at least get the cross, the beam of the cross up to the place called the skull. And even at that, he was so weak from probably loss of blood and exposure that um, Simon of Cyrene had to be recruited to come in and carry the cross for him. Now, Jesus is being nailed to a Roman cross. We talked about last week the cryptic passage of Deuteronomy expressed again in in Galatians 3.13 that he was numbered with transgressors because he was raised up on a tree. So we had a fascinating discussion with um, our interns and some staff a couple weeks ago. When did Jesus take on the sins of the world? Was it when he was being tortured? No. Was it during the scourging? No. Was it when his blood flowed? No. Was it when they nailed the nails into his hands? No. It was when he was lifted up. When he was lifted up, the scriptures say, and it's what's interesting, it's parenthetical in Galatians, actually very cryptic in Deuteronomy, because when Deuteronomy was written, when Moses wrote Deuteronomy, there was no cross. There was no crucifixion at that time. And yet it said, he who is raised up on a cross becomes a curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So I found that many believers don't even understand that. It'll be crucial on understanding of spiritual warfare too. And we'll cover it again. This idea that was, as Jesus was crucified, he still has not died for your sins. But at the point where they raised him up, the curse of God, the curse of the law came upon Jesus. And even though he lived a sinless life, At that point, our curses came upon Christ. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, this is not, by the way, in Mark 15. I'm reading from Luke's account, bringing us up to date. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So what happened? We'll talk more about this next week. But I believe that when Christ was crucified, as he's being raised up, He's going to die. We're going to watch his dying in just a moment. We're going to see him dying. And he's going to enter that day into paradise. And so he will enter into, again, cryptic. Another cryptic passage we'll look at in the days ahead is the, is the many have described it as a parable. I don't believe it's a parable. Lazarus and the rich man, also found in Luke. Where in Lazarus and the rich man, you remember there's a great divide that you can see. And those that are in Hades and those that are in paradise are in the same place called paradise. And so Jesus is about to enter into paradise and he's going to take this criminal with him. Which is another reason we don't believe in, um, in salvation coming through baptism. Because this guy was never baptized. And yet he was saved. He went into paradise with, with Jesus. So even as Jesus is being condemned, he's saving people. 
Isn't that the Savior you want to follow? Even though he's been tortured and beaten to the point where he can't even carry the crossbeam, he's saving a criminal who calls out to him. In Hebrews, we have this cryptic verse, Hebrews 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, listen to this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, listen, despising the shame and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So I believe as Jesus is being condemned in all of the fury, and we talked about this last week, the fury and the wrath of the cup of, of, of condemnation is upon him. He has this joy that he is bringing and he is opening up a way to salvation and intimacy with Christ. And there is a joy because he's despising the shame. And men and women, some of you carry deep, deep wounds of shame in your heart. And I don't have time to unpack it all tonight. But let me say this. That as you learn and grow and get discipled. You're going to find yourself staring at the cross. At the cross literally where we get the word crux. It's the crux of your healing in shame. It's to look to the cross. And so despising the shame and the joy set before him. He's enthroned with God the Father. So we're in verse 33, Mark 15, verse 33. Jesus is now anticipating with joy his reunion with his father. And he's taking a repentant robber with him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So this is from noon till 3 p.m. So it is, it is a sunny, possibly a very sunny day. And suddenly... There is what we believe to be an eclipse, an eclipse of the sun. We know that in Matthew, at this same hour, an earthquake occurred. The Greek historian, this is interesting, the Greek historian Phlegon mentions an eclipse in Jerusalem on November 24th, 29 CE in his history of the Olympiads and says that it was accompanied by an earthquake. The Greek writer Phlegon reported it this way in his writings. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an eclipse of the sun, which was greater than any known before. And in the sixth hour of the day, it became night. So that stars appeared in the heaven and a great earthquake that broke out in Bithynia destroyed the greatest part of Mythia. So that's a secular historian. Once again, historical data backing up the Bible. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what we believe, is that there was this point where Jesus, who was perfect and sinless, was lifted up on the cross in all of the fury and all of the condemnation of, of God, his Father, came upon him and he became sin. He became cursed. 
He broke the law because the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And he is feeling that. He's experiencing that for you and me. He's experiencing that so that you don't have to experience that anymore. Some of you are experiencing that in your life right now. You've never given your heart to Christ. You've never fully surrendered to him. And all of that fury of the Lord is there. And don't you want to be set free? Don't you want to walk out of that into the love of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God is wooing you. That's why you're here. That's why you're here tonight. Because the love and the grace and the tenderness of Christ is coming your way because Christ doesn't want you to experience his fury. He wants you to experience his grace and his forgiveness and his love. We must understand that God doesn't count transgressors the way we do. If a man is, in call, if, if a man is caught embezzling money, he is called an embezzler. If a man kills another man, he is called a murderer. He's called a murderer because he murdered someone. But if he didn't murder anyone, if he didn't embezzle any money, then he's not considered a criminal. Man's law says that a man is not a thief until he steals and not a murderer until he kills. But God's law is entirely different. God's law says that a man steals because he is a thief. And a man kills because he's already a murderer in his heart. God doesn't recognize varied shades of gray or various shades of guilt. Any person who is not perfect in every way like God is a sinner. So James writes this. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. And so Jesus the first fruits of forgiveness of our transgressions who had never sinned, perfect in every way, broke that law on that one instance of cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so all of our sin fell upon him. Dr. Harry Emerson Fostick, a great liberal preacher 50 years ago, once said, Jesus was mistaken when he cried out on the cross, And that God the Father was never more near Christ than at the cross. Such a denial shows a total failure to understand both the holiness of God, the sinfulness of sin, and the authority of Scripture. So who put Christ to death? Who put Christ to death? God the Father. Put Christ the Son to death. The fact that the Jews and the Romans condemned Jesus to death is actually unimportant. God the Father put God the Son to death. This is what makes atonement for sin. Jesus took the sin we deserved upon himself that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived a life we could not live, died a death we could not die, that we might be set free. Listen, to now live a life you cannot live without him. That's good news, folks. That's good news. When I look 
at some of the stuff you guys are going through. Because I know a lot as you've shared stuff with me and with our shepherds. You couldn't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. So the life that he lived, we could not live. The death that he died, we could not die. That through his redemption, we might live a life we cannot live through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hello? That's, that's awesome. He made him. So the father made his son who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You are, you are the righteousness of God, church. You are walking in all the power and the righteousness of God if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot live the Christian life. You can try and you can attempt in your own power with all the perfections of your life and you'll fall again and again because it's impossible to live the Christian life. But when we surrender to him, surrender to his mercy and love, he lives his life through us. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who was delivered up for me. Listen, delivered up for me. Obviously, Paul in writing the Galatians is referring to, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Some of those who stood by, verse 35, when they heard that, said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God the Father killed God the Son that you and I might walk in newness of life and become the righteousness of God. The veil was torn from top to bottom. Impossible. Unless God did it. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick. The veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, separating the holy place from the holy of holies, inviting us to intimacy with Christ that we could never know in our own power. The physical speaks of the spiritual. No longer would we need a priest You don't need me as your pastor to give confession that you can have intimacy with Christ. You can go to Christ wherever you are with your Bible, with your word. You're a priest of the Most High God. Every one of you have the Holy Spirit. Uh, Every one of you have access to God the Father now. You don't have to have a priest. You don't have a confessional. You don't have to be living a righteous life. You can come to the Lord and confess your sin and and repent of your sin. Open the word and the spirit of God will speak to you. He'll speak a word. It'll be a better word than what I'm giving you tonight. It'll be specifically for you. The, The word in the Greek is rhema. He can give you a rhema word. Isn't that exciting? That in Christ... You're a new creation. All the old stuff has passed away and new things have come. You can walk in that newness of life and, and you can go home tonight and, and you know, fight with your wife or your husband all the way home. 
You can do that. And then you can open up the word and you can let God speak to you. And he still loves you. Even though you fought with your spouse. He still loves you. I don't think anybody here is perfect. Anybody's got it all together. We, 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 break, we break the Ten Commandments all the time in our lives. And we can go. And 1 John 1, 9 says we can confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness right then. Well, that means, well, I mean, so I can just go sin and, and do my own thing and then ask for forgiveness. No, that's the wrong heart. If that's your heart, then you're probably not really confessing and repenting. But confession and repenting means, here's what it means. It means you're agreeing with God that that's wrong. That's not right. God, I need your help. I was with a young couple recently. We were talking about issues related to coming to Christ because they didn't know the Lord. And I said, the key word is surrender. Not righteousness. Surrender. You don't have any righteousness. Because that was the issue for them. Well, I mean, if I could get this together, if I could stop drinking, if I could start smoking pot. We had several things on the, the little list. And I said, I had the same list. 35 years ago. And I couldn't change me. But Christ can change you if you'll surrender to him. So give him a, give him a start. Why don't you start? Why don't you do that right now? And so, and so men and women, this relationship with Christ is now accessible because the curtain was ripped. God the Father ripped the curtain because of the death of God the Son to give us access to the Holy Spirit and the love of God. I'm going to stop for just a second and I want us to pray about something. We've been here at Chapel Hills Church for about a year, a little over a year. And you may know, some of you that have been walking through this, um, this labyrinth with us, that they've had a lot of physical problems with this building. And the latest being, I was talking to one of the elders here tonight, I think he said there were 24 leaks um, after that last rain. And you guys see how the, the tiles are out and on. And if you were here two weeks ago when we came in, it was just like buckets everywhere. Um, and then last week when we were doing worship, remember the lights flickered? And they actually went all the way out at one point and then came back up. So I think we need to pray for this building. I mean, I really do. And, uh, and, I, and I think that, uh, I, I just think that sometimes the physical is a picture prophetically of the spiritual. That's what we're talking about here. And so why don't we just right now take a moment and I want to pray for if there's any darkness over this facility. I mean I know there's darkness over this facility. There's darkness over all of our facilities. Um, until we get in there and we start worshiping. And we start praying and we, and we bind the enemy. So I believe there's stuff here going on. That's, that's of the enemy. And I believe having this number of people. And we're all agreeing in prayer. We can break the power. And we can start to see God use this building again. I mean, Chapel Hill's church hasn't grown in years. One time, I think it was up to 800 people, and it's dropped down to about 100. And now we're here, and we're growing. Let's see us all grow. Let's fill this place up. Let's get that lobby packed with people who want to know Jesus. Let's get this sanctuary packed with people who want to get healed and delivered and set free and want to know Jesus. I mean, it's a pretty expensive building to lay empty most of the time. Wouldn't you agree? So, Father, in the name and the blood of Jesus, we're here as the road. And we love Chapel Hills Church. We're here representing them too.
And God, I don't know what's going on in this building, but it's, it's falling apart. And these guys are doing the best they can to, to, to make it a beautiful place for worship. But God, we believe that the enemy can come and steal, kill, and destroy even places. He's doing it in our country right now. And God, in the name of Jesus, we command any darkness to leave this place now by the authority and the blood of Jesus Christ. You have no right to be here. This is a worshiping community. This is a building built for the glory of God. When Bill Lighty and his staff built this facility years ago, they had a vision for thousands coming into the kingdom. And we agree with that vision and we want it resurrected. God, we want this place filled with people who want to know Jesus. We want to see this place filled with people that are getting healed. We want to see this place filled with people that, that want to be disciples, that want to be wholehearted disciples. We want it filled, Lord, and used for your glory. God, I pray this carpet up here will get really dirty in the next year because of the tears of the saints. God, I pray that we need to vacuum this place and clean this place all the time because it's muddy and it's dirty and it's messy because dirty, messy people make dirty, messy carpets and that's who you died for. And so, God, we want this place to be used for the glory of God. I pray you would give all of the elders wisdom on this um, ceiling, how to get all the, all the uh, leaks uh, handled. God, we pray there not be any more leaks. And this place would be used and, and be beautiful and have, um, and have everything working and functioning well in the name of Jesus. And so we come against any darkness, any demonic spirits that have found home here. We command them to leave. We bind them by the authority and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we speak blessing, healing, joy, and power over this building in the name and the blood of Jesus and over Chapel Hills Church and over the leadership and over Pastor Bobby Sanders and his elder board and his whole team and his worship team and the road in the name and the blood of Jesus we pray, amen and amen. Wow, oh, there you go. The Bible says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made us alive together with him. Don't miss this, you guys. This is Colossians 2. Having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now I'm going to unpack this more next week, but I believe this happened when Jesus died. When Jesus died, he went into paradise. He took, a, he took a thief with him into paradise. He went in there. He announced his salvation to Old Testament saints who had walked by faith that had been waiting for the redemption of Christ. If you have any doubts about that, read Hebrews 11 as it talks about those saints there. They were resurrected. There was an earthquake because of the cataclysmic power, the spiritual power affecting the physical realm. There was an earthquake. There was an eclipse. And then remember it says that the tombs were opened and people rose from the grave. Now, it talks about it. it didn't happen right then, but there was an earthquake at that point, but they rose from the grave after the resurrection of Christ because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So, so this would indicate 
that there are inscriptions, there are condemnations written against every one of us in this room. That Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is accusing you day and night and he has actually written testimony against you. And Paul is saying to the Colossians that those requirements and those, that condemnation upon you was nailed to the cross. It was nailed to the cross. Jesus took that and he finished that and it was buried with him. And you've got to learn. And if you haven't learned it, we're going to learn it this summer. How to say to the devil this passage. You're going to start to learn to say, I was dead in my sins, but he, Jesus, has made me alive together with him. He has forgiven me all my trespasses. He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against me, which was contrary to me. He has taken it out of the way. He has nailed it to the cross. He has disarmed principalities and powers. He has made a public spectacle of them and he has triumphed over them in my life. You got to say that. I think you got to verbalize it. You got to say it to the enemy. It does two things when you say it. Number one, you create life. Scriptures say you can create life or death with the power of the tongue. So you create life. Second thing it does, it builds in you strength and courage. There's something about hearing you say a proclamation. That creates a demonstration of the power of God. Satan is defeated of his power at the cross. And I believe the reason we, and we as pastors don't preach the cross is because the enemy knows how much power is in it and he convinces us that we've already heard it before. No, we need to hear it and we need to rehear it and we need to re-energize it and we need to re-empower it and we need to relive it with our lives. Verse 39, so in the centurion, I love this, centurion, a Gentile, a Gentile. When the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, truly this man was the son of God. Truly this man was the son of God. I mean, like John Wayne would say it. Um, first Gentile. I mean, we talk about Cornelius being the first Gentile. Actually, this is the first Gentile that got saved. This guy got saved. He, he, he heard this. He saw this. God did something in his heart. He believes. Even before the Jews, he believes. And history, tradition says that he became a mighty man of God in his generation. There were also women looking on from afar. Among whom were Mary Magdalena. Mary the mother of James, the less. And of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. And many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Where's the men? They all booked it. Men. Everybody, every man in this room, look at me. It takes phenomenal strength and courage to be a man of God. It really does. Our natural bent is to be a wimp. 
That's our natural bent. Our natural bent is we go to work and somehow we're a warrior there and then we come home and we totally acquiesce everything to the women. And we become couch potatoes. Saint couch potato. And I want to challenge you this week because if it'll last for one week, it'll be a miracle. Try, Try this for one week. When you're going home, Tell yourself, I'm going to be a warrior at home too. I am going to be a warrior at home too. And then tell yourself, I am going to sign up for the whole heart advance to prove to my wife that I'm going to be a warrior for more than one week. St. Agnes of Assisi was St. Francis' assistant as he began his ministry. St. Teresa of Avila, St. Catherine of Siena, Lottie Moon, Maria Taylor, both mightily used of God in China, Amy Carmichael with her famous orphanage in Calcutta, India, Catherine Marshall, the wife of Peter Marshall, who died, who was chaplain to the Senate, Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife, Vonette Bright, Dr. Bill Bright's wife, Mother Teresa, Shirley Dobson, who leads the National Day of Prayer. Women, mightily used of God. Oh, for our women. They hung with Jesus. They stayed at the cross. Women, God uses you in such mighty and powerful ways. There's a tenacity about women. I grew up with strong women in the Holt family. My mom was a steel magnolia. Let me just tell you. Nothing got past her. I remember one time um, we were out at uh, our cabin in South Carolina. And we were staying there and for two years while dad went back to graduate school. And uh, this guy came on the property and he was, very, he was just cussing every other word. And he was really obnoxious about something that grandfather, some deal that he said he got ripped off with my grandfather who was a rancher. And my, my grandfather never ripped anybody off, but he could outfox almost everybody. So anyway, he was upset, and he thought Granddaddy Joe, that was my grandfather, would be there. He wasn't, so he goes at my dad. And my dad, you guys have met my dad. He's a really gentle, compassionate guy. And so dad just kind of, I can tell he's steaming, but he won't say anything. Ooh. And then my mom came. And I remember I was fishing. I was fishing out there for bass, and I'm listening to this. And I'm just, I, you know how when you're in that, you're, I'm 12 years old. I can't look at the guy because I'm thinking, oh, it's kind of embarrassing. And I want dad to just, you know, just, just nail the guy. And that, my dad's never hit anybody in his life. But I, I think my mom might have whacked a few people. I don't know. <laughs> so she's talking about her dad. I mean, he's talking about her dad. So, so mom comes around the corner, and I think she had just driven up. She was getting stuff out. Um, she was a school teacher at that time. And I mean, she had on heels, and she had on, they were stockings back then and stuff, you know. And so she comes out there, and I mean, she just lays into this guy. And he backs off so quick, he gets in his car, spins a wheel, and gets out of there. And I was like, yes, way to go, Melba Holt, the battler, you know. And uh, I love women. I love women who fight back. It's awesome. You can fight back around here. We like it, okay? Strong men marry strong women. And uh, I hope you women are strong in the Lord, but that you're submitted and you're supportive of your husband. 
And I think what submission means, it means that you're supportive. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. I don't like doormat women. Because that, then you don't compliment your man. But see, if you're who God's made you, but you're submitted under his authority, then you compliment. And then two's better than one. It's beautiful. Beautiful combination. The way it's supposed to be. That makes sense? All right. So these women are hanging out. Where's the guys? Verse 42. Now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day of the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, and we know that he was a secret follower of Christ, coming and taking courage. I love that passage. So, so Mark recognized him as having courage. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, brought, then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. We know historically it was probably about a two-ton um, stone. And Mary Magdalena and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So Joseph of Arimathea was a secret follower of Jesus. John says that. John references Nicodemus. That Nicodemus, remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus who came and asked about how one could be born again. He and Joseph of Arimathea helped um, wrap the body. Jesus is wrapped in over 100 pounds of spices and wrappings. John writes, quote, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds, and bound it in strips of linen. And then Jesus' body is laid in a rock fortress with a two-ton rock rolled over the front. So let's put this together now. Jesus is dead. Not mostly dead. He's dead. They, they had a way to check, and they came to, to, to break his legs so that asphyxiation would be hurried up on the cross, found him to be dead, and the Romans knew when people were dead, and they've driven a spear into his heart. He's been taken down, 100 pounds, 100 pounds of spices and linens he's wrapped in. Observed by at least four people mentioned. Placed into a tomb, a rock-hewn, stone-hewn tomb, two-ton rock placed. We're going to find out from other passages that a seal, a Roman seal, and a guard is put over the tomb. And now, it's done. We're finally done with Jesus. That rebellious outlaw preacher. We're done with him. So next week, chapter 16. God the Father put God the Son to death. There was and there is no other payment for sin. I am the way, Jesus said, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one can have intimacy with the Father but through me. You're a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. There is no other way to be forgiven and set free into new life but through Christ and his death on the cross. 
Bible says the carnal man, that means the natural mind, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The Bible says there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. We say, well, wait. There's a lot of people who do good. Listen, by man's standards, there are people on this earth that are better and do more good than many believers do. But what the scriptures are saying, before God, there's no one who does good that can earn a personal relationship with him. The heart is deceitful, the Bible says, above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Nothing good that we do saves us. But what Christ did at the cross, if we will believe by faith and put our trust in him, we can know Christ in intimacy and the veil, the veil that separates us from God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit can be opened up into a personal, vital, dynamic, loving relationship with Jesus Christ. He loves you, men and women. And that power has taken all those accusations and all that shame that comes from demons. And he has nailed it to the tree. And it was buried with him and it is done for. And you can now come into newness of life. And all the old ways can be forgotten about. And you can be a new creation in Christ. By the power of Jesus For he, the Father, made him the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Scriptures say that if he be lifted up, I would draw all men unto himself. So tonight, we're going to go into worship. As we go into worship, you have access now to intimacy with Christ through worship. But if you've never fully and completely surrendered to Christ, if there's doubts in your heart, come to Christ tonight. I I kept getting throughout the service at the beginning and then before the service with the prayer, the men's prayer time, that there's a number of you that need a healing. That you're, you're in need of us laying hands on you and praying for healing, for a breakthrough physically, Uh, in your life or emotionally in your life that God wants to come with a healing. And so after the worship, I'm going to invite you to come up to get prayer. Prayer for healing. God wants to break through in healing. And he's going to do some cool stuff tonight. Let's stand. Worship team comes up. I don't know about you, but I I would just say this about um, my journey, and that is you're always surrendering. You know, there's a a surrender that opens the door into intimacy, 
But then there's always this re-surrender that we have to do. That we, we come to Christ and we realize, man, I've been doing it my way. I've been, I've been in the flesh. I've been uh, selfishly thinking about me and this or that area. And we have to come again, don't we? And we re-surrender to Christ. So why don't we take a moment? Let's just take one minute. And everybody just close your eyes, bow your heads, and take inventory. And set your heart for worship. Set your heart for praise. Father God, come right now. Minister to your saints. God, if there's areas of our life that we've never surrendered to you, bring those to mind. Lord, if there's areas of our life that tonight when we end this worship, we need to come up and we need to get prayer. And Father God, show, show us that too.